it's so nice to hear all the different praises and testimonies that we have to share. Uh, Bob sharing about how the Lord used someone, and we don't know who, but to drop off a track in front of your brother's uh, doorstep. Paul, to hear about that encounter, always being ready. Um, I did have a question. When can I expect my cheesesteak? I'll let you figure that one out. But it's certainly a blessing. It's certainly a blessing to be able to share with one another about how good God is and just the wonderful opportunity that we get to fellowship with one another and to come together and just praise him. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So I'd invite you to turn with me at this time to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll briefly look at verses 16 and 17, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, in a sermon that I've titled, Can the Bible Be Trusted? Can the Bible be trusted. As we begin a new year with a heavy emphasis on Bible reading and memorization, I thought it pertinent to answer the question, can the Bible be trusted? If we're concentrating our efforts to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God, and to apply the Bible to our lives, we ought to know that it is trustworthy. Now, I know this may seem like a rather silly and a pointless lesson considering you are all here tonight, not because I've paid you to be here tonight, but because you probably already believe the Bible to be trustworthy. You probably wouldn't come to church at all if you didn't believe the Bible were trustworthy, and honestly, I wouldn't either. And thankfully, I believe the Bible to be completely trustworthy, as hopefully you all do. But can we explain the Bible's trustworthiness to someone if we were asked about it? Could we formulate an argument against someone who is trying to claim that the Bible is not trustworthy? Part of our, our calling as Christians is to be able to defend what it is that we believe. If you were asked to defend what you believe about the Bible, what you found in Scripture, could you? Could you prove to someone that it is trustworthy? If we can't convince people that the Bible is trustworthy, how will we ever be able to lead anyone to Christ? Now, we need to know why the Bible is trustworthy. We need to be able to explain why it is better than just saying, well, you know, the Bible says so. That's why. Of course, the Bible says so. But what makes the Bible true? What makes what the Bible says real? It was my goal to start off this year, 2022, answering some questions that every Christian should know. And I thought the best place to start would be with the Word of God itself. Hopefully this series, and I haven't figured out how many questions we're going to answer, but hopefully it will be helpful to you as it has already proved to be helpful to me. And hopefully we shed some light on some areas, maybe of weakness in your life as a Christian, that could really stand to use some support and fortifying. So let's begin by answering this question, can the Bible be trusted? And let's look at 1st, 2nd Timothy 3, 16 to 17. So your Bibles are open, I'm going to read these two verses. 2nd Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Maybe familiar verses to many of us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And these verses 
really are the place to start with answering the question, can the Bible be trusted? Because these verses deal with the absolute authority of the Bible. Before we can answer this question, there are a couple things we have to understand first. First, we need to understand that man has three problems. Every single human being has three problems, sin, sorrow, and death. No matter how you chalk it up and what other problems you can think of, every other problem you can think of falls underneath one of these three key problems, sin, sorrow, and, de and death. What does this have to do with the Bible, though? Well, the Bible is the only book in the entire world that has the answers to all of these three problems. Therefore, you can understand why this book would be so important to read if it deals with answering the problems, the only problems that we have as human beings, sin, sorrow, and death. But we still haven't answered the question as to whether or not the Bible is trustworthy. The second thing we need to see is that the Bible is also being attacked. Man has three problems, but the Bible is also being attacked. Now, it's no secret that Satan hates the Bible and wants to do everything he can to destroy the Bible, to destroy any sort of working of Scripture getting out into the world. And the longer we have been around, the more we have seen just how the Bible has been attacked. It has been despised. It has been distorted. It has been misused. It has been abused. But I believe the biggest attack on the Bible is not from outside the world, but from the so-called Christians who flat out ignore and just disregard the Bibles. Someone has said, These hath God married, and no man shall part. Dust in the Bible, and drought in the heart. Now as a Christian, God's word should be so incredibly important to you. It is important because our salvation depends upon understanding the message of the gospel. Our assurance of salvation rests on understanding and believing the truth of the Bible. Our spiritual growth depends on us living according to the principles of the Bible. Our ability to effectively witness to those around us depends on our confidence in the Bible. Our Christian life is contingent on having a trustworthy Bible. So let me offer several reasons why the Bible is indeed trustworthy. First, we see the scientific accuracy of the Bible. The scientific accuracy of the Bible. Throughout the years, we have found that scientific accuracy has confirmed everything the Bible has said to be the Word of God, to be trustworthy. I wanted to start with science because so often science is the one category, the one topic that is used most to try and disprove the Bible. And it is the argument most used by those who try to and deny the Bible. Many people like to claim that the Bible is full of all sorts of scientific errors. But the problem with the people who make such claims is that I find they know very little about both these issues. They know very little about the Bible, and they probably know very little about science as well. And those who understand science are forced to admit that science is always changing. It has been estimated that the, a library in the Louvre in Paris, there are three and a half miles of books just on science. Believe it or not, nearly all of those books are now obsolete because of how much science has changed. In 1861, the French Academy of Science wrote a pamphlet stating that there were 51 irrefu irrefutable scientific facts proving the Bible to be false. 1861. Today, 
there is not a single reputable scientist in the world who believes any of those 50 so-called facts. The point is that science is always changing, but the word of God remains constant. Consider the following. How many of you knew that the earth, this planet, is suspended in space? We're living on a planet that is literally just floating in space. This is one of the most fundamental scientific facts that everyone will agree to be true. But that wasn't always the case. The ancient Egyptians first believed that the earth was actually being supported by massive, massive pillars. The ancient Greeks believed that the earth was literally being carried on the back of a giant named Atlas. Ancient Hindus believed that the earth was actually resting on the back of giant elephants. That was the science of the day that was presented, and it was accepted to be true. Now, when we open up the Bible, and we turn to Job 26, verse 7, we don't find that the earth is being supported by giant pillars, or elephants, or a giant of a man named Atlas. What we're told in Job 26, verse 7 is this. Speaking about God, he stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. He hangeth the earth upon nothing. And the book of Job is quite possibly the oldest piece of literature known to man. And even Job knew the earth was literally suspended on nothing. The only way Job would have known this was through divine inspiration, was through divine revelation, God literally revealing it to him because the Bible wasn't complete at the time for him to read through other portions and find this to be true. And again, we see here in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God must have divinely revealed it to Job. Okay, I know what you're thinking. So, big deal. So the earth is just hanging in space with nothing there to support it. I've seen it all before. It doesn't matter if the Bible has always claimed that. That doesn't prove anything. Well, how about another theory? How many of you knew that the earth is round and not flat? Well, once again, the Bible knew before anyone else. Most of us know the earth is round because we've seen pictures that are taken from satellites that are orbiting space or, or orbiting the planet in space. But people didn't always believe the earth to be round. Back in 1492, we have the famous song, famous poem, whatever it is. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He was told that if he sailed too far, he'd actually fall right off the edge because it was believed and accepted the earth to be flat. 1492 was not that long ago. And yet in 750 BC, we're told from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 22. Again, he speaks about God. He says this, It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Now, in case that's not enough for you, the Hebrew word that's used for circle there, it literally means globe or sphere. So it's not just that he's, you know, the earth is flat and there's a dome over it. It literally means a globe or a ball or a sphere. God, it says, sitteth upon the globe, the sphere, the circle of the earth. 750 B.C. 
How is it possible that Job knew the earth was suspended by nothing in space? How is it possible that Isaiah knew that the earth was a globe 750 years before the time of Christ? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 tells us exactly how the writers of Scripture knew what to write. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says this. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. So what it's saying here is that men didn't just come together and decide, hey, we're going to write this up. We're going to record this as we found out to, to be true. No, not of any private interpretation. It says not by the will of man. It says, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we come back here to 2 Timothy 3.16 and it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. God literally inspired this. God spoke through the Holy Spirit to these men to write what he knows is true and what would be eventually recorded in scripture. God supernaturally revealed his truth to those who would put pen to paper and write the Bible. And that is why the Bible has been proven to be true long before anyone even knew the truth. But... I can see you're a very tough crowd and you're still not convinced. So we'll keep moving. How many of you have ever tried to count the stars on a clear night? No one? Wow, that's pretty lame. I'll tell you why no one has done that. Because there are far too many stars to count. Of course there are, but that was not always the accepted belief. 150 years before the birth of Christ, there was a man who thought he could take on this impossible challenge of counting every single star in the night sky. And so one day he drank a really tall cup of coffee, grabbed several pens, whole big stack of paper. He stared into the night sky, kept rubbing his eyes to keep himself awake in the process, and recorded every single last star that appeared in the night sky. And when he was complete, he came to a number. 1,022. 1,022 stars in the entire night sky. 1,022 stars in space. Thank you, science. This man's findings were actually considered accurate for about 250 years until another man came along. This man drank an even larger cup of coffee, counted a few more than 1,022 stars. He counted 1,056 stars. Guess what? The science of the day just got updated because science is always changing. And that remained the case, 1,056 stars for quite some time until another man wasn't drinking coffee, but he invented something we know as the telescope. Galileo found that there were far too many stars that could ever be counted. Within the last 30 years, scientific journals have stated that scientists have identified that there are more suns like our sun in the known universe than there are grains of sand on all the seashores on the earth. Wrap your mind around that. It's too bad the Bible didn't beat Galileo to the punch. Oh, that's right, it did. In Jeremiah 33, verse 22, it tells us this. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered. Wow, that's a novel, idea, novel thought. 
As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured. If only people would have just read the Bible first, they would have had a concrete idea as to all these things. But I see you're, you're still not satisfied. Okay, let's maybe bring this a little bit closer to home. Does that sound good? How many of you know that blood circulates throughout your body? Anyone question that? No, you shouldn't. Well, up until the year 1628, people, didn't, people weren't sure. If you can remember to some of your high school science lessons and classes, you can probably recall learning about blood and the function it plays, how it is the fuel for our cells, it carries oxygen, it carries away waste, it fights diseases, and it helps to maintain proper body temperatures. Believe it or not, this is a relatively new development in science. Just a couple hundred years ago, doctors and scientists believed in something that was called bad blood. It was believed that the human body contained some really dangerous fluids that could get into your bloodstream, thus producing what they referred to as bad blood. And so the only way to remove this bad blood from your bloodstream was to do something they referred to as bloodletting. This is actually where they would go and drain blood from you until you started improving from your sickness. You're laughing because you realize just how futile that is. A little known and interesting fact, in 1799, George Washington actually died through this process of bloodletting. Three doctors tried to cure him of a cold. And this was the common practice. In fact, bloodletting was looked upon as, you know, only the practice for those who could really afford it. It was, you know, the, the prominent practice in medicine. And so three different doctors were called in, and they actually laid him down and started draining blood. And they'd keep doing it until they'd see his situation maybe improving. And it eventually got to the point where he realized he was dying, and he just told them to stop, and he ended up dying not that long afterwards. Someone has suggested that ever since George Washington bled to death, politicians have been bleeding us to death to get even. I don't know if that's true. I can't confirm that. But I do know that had he been sick today, they would have probably given him, been giving him a blood transfusion, not going through the process of removing blood. But the Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 17 and verses 11 and 14, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood for it is the life of all flesh the blood of it is for the life thereof if only we would have looked at the bible we would have had the answers to all these questions long before george washington the holy spirit had revealed this little important truth about blood and its importance to the life of the body all the way to moses he gave this truth not that, long, not that long ago, archaeologists discovered ancient writings from the Egyptians about 1,500 years before the time of Christ, around the time of Moses. The Egyptians were known for being incredibly skilled, incredibly clever. After all, they figured out how to build pyramids, and we still can't figure out how they did it. But they also had some really foolish ideas. Some of these ancient writings that were found included some medical practices that they used to employ on a regular basis. Listen to just a few of them. If you were interested in preventing gray hair, now pay attention. 
You could anoint your head with the blood of a black cat that had been boiled in oil or with the fat of a rattlesnake. Are some of you taking notes? There's, there's more. You're probably thinking, well, gray hairs isn't, isn't that bad. You know, I'm, I'm okay with it. If you wanted to get out a splinter, they recommended taking a medicine, ingesting a medicine made up of a combination of worm's blood and donkey dung. I'm fine with the splinter staying put, right? No thank you. Moses lived in Egypt 40 years. He, he went to schools that probably taught this. Thankfully, none of that made it into the Bible. Thankfully, he never offered his own wisdom, his, the own will of man into Scripture, but he let the Holy Spirit do the work and lead him to write what we have in Scripture. Now, these are only a few areas where the Bible has been vindicated through scientific accuracy. And trust me, there are plenty more examples of the Bible proving itself to be true and trustworthy. We've only scratched the surface here this evening on just some of the scientific part of it. So as we've looked at a few of these changes in science, I, for one, am so thankful that the Bible and modern science don't always agree. If the Lord should tarry another 100 or 200 years, who knows what new advancements will be found in science? Science is always changing, but the Bible always remains the same. So we've seen the scientific accuracy, which proves the Bible to be true. Second, we, let's take a look at the his, historical accuracy of the Bible. The historical accuracy of the Bible. In the late 1800s, a scholar by the name of Dr. Driver, he scoffed at the idea that Moses was able to write the first five books of the Bible. He said, there's no way. He suggested that man didn't even know how to write at that point, so there's no way to even suggest that a man like Moses could have written the first five books of the Bible. Impossible. This was the view that was held to be historically accurate for quite some time until a lady who was doing some gardening in Egypt discovered some clay tablets in her soil. And so she dusted them off and they tested them and they found out that these tablets had been determined to be very old, to be around in the time of Moses, even before Moses. And these tablets were used for people to communicate from Egypt all the way up to the land of Palestine or the land of Israel. So they eventually found that not only did people know how to write before Moses, they had an entire postal system allowing them to send correspondence back and forth. It was therefore concluded that Moses could have indeed known how to write and very well could have written the first five books of the Bible. In the book of Daniel, we have the story about the handwriting on the wall. You have King Belshazzar who had put on a great feast for over a thousand of his lords, the Bible says. And as they were feasting and they're praising their own false gods of gold, of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and stone, everything under the sun, a hand all of a sudden appears out of nowhere and begins writing on the wall. And it showed that the king of Babylon would be the last king of Babylon. Now, many historians just laughed at this such a story, insisting that Belshazzar, he wasn't even the last king of Babylon, so this couldn't even be true. Now, historians knew the last king of Babylon to be a man named Nabonidus. But one day, an archaeologist uncovered an old cylinder with a name on it that read Belshazzar. More records were later found that these, that, that Historians were indeed correct when they said that Nabonidus was indeed the last king of Babylon. But 
They were wrong when they said that Belshazzar was not the last king of Babylon. As it turns out, Nabonidus and Belshazzar were actually father and son, and they both ruled simultaneously. Nabonidus was a hunter who was often gone, leaving Belshazzar to be the king, to be the one who was essentially in charge. And so Belshazzar, when he called for Daniel to come and to interpret the writing on the wall, to come and interpret what it said and what it meant, he said this in Daniel 5.16. He says, And I have heard of thee, that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck, and get this, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. The third ruler in the kingdom because there were already two kings reigning at the same time. Would the Bible be any less the word of God if those records were never found? No. What we find is that everything eventually catches up to the Bible. The more that time goes on, the more we find the Bible was actually true all along. When a historian or a scientist finally has something good to say about the Bible, you shouldn't be thinking, man, I knew the Bible was right. You should be thinking that all along. You should be thankful that finally someone is noticing the truth in the Bible. Don't ever lose faith in the Bible and depend upon an historian to reaffirm that faith that you have in the Bible. Because whether it is with science or history, the Bible always and will always stand the test of time. So we've seen the historical accuracy that the Bible proves. But third, you can't help but notice the unity of the Bible. The unity of the Bible. The Bible is one book made up of 66 books. I don't have enough fingers on my hand to do it. 66 books spanning from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It is a compilation of 40 different men who put pen to paper over a period stretching over 1,500 years. These men lived in at least 13 different countries on three different continents. Most of them came from different backgrounds. Some were shepherds, some were kings, some were soldiers, some were princes, some were fishermen, some were historians, some were scholars. Others were just ordinary common folk. Each writer had their own unique style, and the Bible was even used, and it was written in three different languages. So what truly makes it incredible is that from Genesis to Revelation, with all of that considered, 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is telling one story. One story. Not 66 different stories or 40 different stories if you take each individual author. One story. Every part of the Bible, it fits so perfectly together in perfect harmony. What other piece of literature can say the same? Forty different authors, spanning a period of 1,500 years from different countries, men from different countries and different continents, from different backgrounds, with different writing styles, writing in different languages, and somehow, by chance, the collective work tells one story. By chance, right? If you've ever tried to recreate such a piece of literary work under those same circumstances, you would come up with the biggest jumbled mess of nonsense. And yet greater than every literary work we have ever seen, one book stands alone with absolute harmony and unity, and it is the Bible. 
The Bible is truly the word of God because only God could compile such a work under such circumstances and still preserve such unity. Dr. R.A. Torrey, he offered this illustration. He said, suppose in your city they decided to build a monument honoring all of the different 50 states in the Union. So imagine what they did is they, from here in New York, let's take New York, they reached out to all the different states and they said, send us a stone and we're going to make a monument out of all of these stones to commemorate the 50 states. So stones of all different colors are gathered from each state and then suppose that each stone is cut into a different shape and then it is shipped to our state. Now workers then begin to stack the stones and all of a sudden they find that all the stones fit so perfectly together by chance. They're interlocking without any sort of issue at all. There's not a single gap, not a single loose stone, not too many stones, not too few, just exactly what they needed to make the perfect monument. No stone needs to be shaved down to fit into place, and when it is all finished, it's a magnificent temple. No one in their right mind would say that it all happened by chance. Everyone would conclude that there must have been some master architect who could see the structure in his mind before it was complete, what he envisioned it would come out to be. And then he went and he sent applications to each quarry to what size each stone should be that they're going to send from their state and what shape it needed to be in so that it would fit just perfectly once it arrived. And this is exactly the case with the Bible. It didn't just happen by chance that all of these different men from all these different backgrounds somehow wrote different books, 66 different books, that all ended up being a perfect part of one complete book. That doesn't happen by chance. That doesn't happen. Therefore, as we look at the Bible, we see that its unity is an absolutely amazing proof of its trustworthiness as it is without a doubt given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now fourth, we see the fulfilled prophecy of the Bible. The fulfilled prophecy of the Bible. We don't have enough time in the day to talk about this, but let me just give you a few. We've just celebrated Christmas. We identified several Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the birth of Christ uh, 700 years before it happened. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come. Micah prophesied where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. A thousand years before Christ, David wrote in Psalm 22, which contained 33 prophecies, which were fulfilled by Christ just at Calvary. It tells of how his hands and his feet would be pierced, how his garments would be parted and gambled over. The very words that Christ would speak from the cross are recorded there in Psalm 22. Now, Jesus, when he was upon the cross, wasn't thinking back to what David said and quoting from David. The Holy Spirit had enlightened David to actually look ahead to events that wouldn't be completed until Jesus Christ stood up, nailed to that cross a thousand years later. And what makes Psalm 22 even more astonishing is that the form of capital punishment that was used in David's day was not crucifixion, it was stoning. So none of that would have made any sense. And the Romans who practiced crucifixions were nowhere close to coming into power in David's day. So again, it makes no, no sense. It's not, it's, it's not applicable. Scholars suggest that Jesus fulfilled more than 300 Old Testament prophecies. It has been said that you can take a Christian, you can lock them away in a dungeon with just a Bible and a candle. 
And he will know more about what is happening in the world today than all the pundits in Washington. Now, these are just a few examples, but evidence enough to prove that the Bible is trustworthy, for it is indeed the inspired word of God. These prophecies are just a few. There's so many more that we can touch. But notice with me point number five. We see the preservation of the Bible. The preservation of the Bible. Again, here in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What literary work can you think of that has stood the test of time better than the Bible? I'll wait. No one's got anything? There's no book that has been around longer. There's no book that has faced more opposition than the Bible and continue to exist. The Bible is the most argued book. It is the most criticized book. It is the most scrutinized book. It is the most ridiculed book. It is the most scorned book. And yet man can do nothing to get rid of it. People have tried to burn it thinking that they're going to just be rid of it altogether. And guess what? We still have it today. There was actually a time in Scottish history where it was a crime worthy of death to own a Bible. I'd have like a hundred life sentences against me with all the Bibles I have. As much as the Bible is hated, as much as men seek to destroy it, it has been divinely preserved throughout the years. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. It is amazing to see men stand up against the Bible, seeking to tear it down, only for them to meet their own demise and to see that the Bible is still standing tall. There's a reason why the Bible has stood the test of time and all opposition, and that is because we're not made to judge the Bible. The Bible is made to judge us. It is absolutely astonishing to consider that we're able to hold in our hands a book with words recorded thousands of years ago that are still extremely relevant to us today. As old as it is, and as much as things have advanced over the years, the principles of this book are still valuable today as they were when they were first written. What other book can make that claim? The preservation of the Bible. Sixth, we see the transforming power of the Bible. The transforming power of the Bible. Again, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It would be one thing if the Bible that we had held in our hands was just some old historical book full of information that had no application to us today. But we don't just read the Bible to gain some knowledge about history of old. We read the Bible because we believe in its power to transform those who not just understand it, but apply its truth to their lives. Most, if not all of you, are here today because you believe in the power of the Word of God to change lives. Because you've experienced it personally for yourself. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it tells us this. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God is seen in his word. 
And it is still having that transforming power today. We're also told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that word quick, where it says the word of God is quick, it literally means alive. It literally means life-giving. It is like the word quicken that we have in Scripture. The Bible is a book that points out that we are sinners and shows us the path to salvation. It says it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Someone has said that while we read other books, the Bible reads us. It, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. But the Bible does so much more than just lead us to salvation. I don't want to even trivialize that at all because salvation is absolutely important. But it does more than that. In Psalm 119, verse 165, it tells us that the Bible brings peace to those who love it. Great peace have they who love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Countless times God has shown me words of comfort in his word. The blessings of this book are indeed endless. I have known men who have devoted most of their lives to studying the Bible and have found that they have come nowhere near the end of what the Bible offers. Someone has said that the Bible is so deep that scholars can swim their entire lives and never touch the bottom, and yet it is so precious that a little child can come and get a drink without fear of drowning. Thank God for the Bible. So can the Bible be trusted? I think a better question to ask is, can you afford not to trust the Bible? I may not be that old, but I've seen enough in God's word to know that there is nothing more trustworthy than the Bible. I certainly would not devote my entire life preaching a book that I didn't believe to be trustworthy. I wouldn't devote my entire life preaching a book that I didn't believe to be 100% trustworthy. If I believe the Bible to be wrong in even one place, I'm throwing it away and I'm never preaching a day in my life. But thank God the words in this book are not just some words that 40 different men came up with on their own, but they are the very inspired words of God that 40 men were led to write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All Scripture, all Scripture, not part, all, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Is the Bible trustworthy? The Bible is more trustworthy than you are alive right now. Because the Bible is the words of God which abide forever. You'll never be a mature Christian if you do not find the Bible trustworthy. But you can't just take my word for it. You must experience the trustworthiness of the Bible for yourself. Spend time in it daily. Commit it to memory. And see for yourself how it is indeed trustworthy. Would you bow with me in prayer at this time? Heavenly Father, I'm thankful, Lord, for your word. Our time here this evening, Lord, doesn't even just give us enough time to express how awesome and magnificent and encouraging your word is. But Lord, as we've, as we've touched on just a few points here this evening, how it has indeed inspired every word. Lord, help us to understand that it is also indeed trustworthy. Lord, people are going to come and go. 
traditions and different beliefs in the world are going to waver back and forth. But we are so thankful that our faith is not resting in the will of man, but in the very words of God, which never fail and abide forever. May it be your word that we stand upon here in this life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.